the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. With me, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, everybody. Hope you're enjoying Monster Hunter and everything that comes with it. I'm enjoying Monster Hunter. I'm enjoying Monster Hunter. Mike and I went out on a hunt yesterday for the stream, and I forget what we were tracking. Something, some nasty little electric ferret thing, and just as Anjanath came in and did the whole Jurassic Park thing and started fighting with it, and mm. it was pretty awesome. We were just kind of pointing and laughing while it was all going on. It's so rad, isn't it? Yeah. Like, the Anjanaf will grab it in his jaws and be like, yeah, just and then the throw it on the ground. I'm like, oh, it's winning. Oh, no, the Anjanaf is winning. Oh, my God. And then I got too close, and the Anjanaf got really pissed off and, like, bit me. <laughs> like you do. Yeah. I killed one of those last night. I saw on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah, congratulations. I haven't killed one yet. <sighs> those things are bastards. Yes, yes. They, they. I tried to kill one, and I just got, like, it stepped on me. I got demolished. <laughs> I I mean, I was at the point of the story where it's like, you have to take one on now, yeah. like, to advance. Yeah, that's right. And I killed enough of the electric ferrets, I forget what they're called, yeah. but I, I'm going to go with electric ferret, um, that I was able to get the full armor set for them. Oh, nice. Not only the far, full armor set, but also the special electric ferret-themed charge sword. Mm, nice. Which uh, has affinity with the armor, so it got like better attack it raised up to something like 396 attack and still and i got a full party and went after this thing and it still managed to kill me (laughs) because i was getting in front of its face when it was breathing fire and if it does a mega fire attack it's gonna kill you yeah you're dead yeah you are dead in one hit and i'm uh, I even tried to get some armor that I even tried to get gloves that were a little bit fire resistant. <laughs> I got the gloves, man. I got my oven mitts on. You can't touch me. Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Didn't do it. So I actually went to our guides. Shout out to Hiran, nice. who's been noodling around in the background and read up on it. And it was like, okay, the tail and the head are the weak spots. And a good place to kind of be is sort of underneath its belly. Mm-hmm. And so I was being a lot more, I, w- I want to say, cautious about the way that I approached it. Yeah. So I was just making sure to stay away from being in front of it. Yeah. Because if you're in front of it, it's going to charge you or it's going to hit you with fire or something. And I was able to stay underneath it and keep wailing away yeah. at it. And I was using my axe attacks, and they were doing tons and tons of damage. And then a dragon showed up. Oh, the Rathalos. <laughs> yeah, those dragons are flying around, and suddenly the dragon shows up and grabs it and flings it over <laughs> and is attacking it. And I'm just trying to avoid trying to stay out of its way while also killing the Anjanath. And finally, I was out of Mega Potions. Oh, bad news. I was actually out of Mega Potions, but I was able to hang on long enough and finally kill the thing. And now it's dead. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm ready to move on to the next section uh, of the story, which seems to be like a major story section. Oh. I suspect I'll be opening up a, a new region pretty soon, which is good because I'm, 
I like the current regions, but they're getting a little tiresome. Yeah, yeah. So that's the fun. You get to move on to the next region and uh, see what's see what's there. Capture new animals. I like capturing the small animals. And uh, I have one in my room, one of the little, uh, I think they're called shepherd hares. It just kind of runs feel I feel so guilty when I kill the herbivores. Yeah. They're just minding their own they, business. They're just minding their own business. And then when they die, they go, yeah. <laughs> and they just sit there while you wail on them. And... And you only harvest raw meat from them, which is admittedly useful because it raises your stamina for a fight. But still, yeah. I feel bad. It's a poor little creature. I don't. I don't kill the herbivores very often. I know. I just eat at the canteen and and deal with it. Uh, it, it reminded me of Bob's Monster Hunter vegetarianism and Monster Hunter article because Bob and I are both vegetarians, and yeah, it it, it definitely. I'm not against hunting, mm-hmm. per se. I, I actually think that hunting can be pretty important for population control and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I suppose I'm pretty sensitive to the lives of animals and the idea of taking a life. And yeah. I think it, it makes me feel bad even when it's a this digital thing. Yeah, so. I know what you mean. I feel a little bit guilty, too. I mean, I'm a total meat eater, uh, but I'm not against hunting because I believe, well, if I eat meat, I have no, no right to, con- to condemn someone who can look mm. the whatever in the eye and kill it for themselves but mm. i'm not big on trophy hunting and there is some of that going on in monster hunter yeah just a bit i mean they're there they're just kind of minding their own business in their ecosystem and the coolest thing about monster hunter world is the really lively ecosystem yeah i love that but they're in your way <laughs> they are and then like you know i'm i'm, I'm trying to kill this great jagras and these little jagrasses are like hey leave our mom alone and i'm like screw you you want to die too i'll kill you don't bite me. And they, well, those things are annoying. I don't mind killing them. <laughs> Lizards. I'll be trying to track something else, and they'll get in my way, and the the, the fireflies will go away, and I'll go, God, dang it. Get out of my way. Get out of my way. What weapon do you use? I use a dual blade mostly. Okay. Seems like charge blade and dual blades are two very popular choices. Yeah, when I was playing with Mike the other day, um, he was using the gun. Uh, mm. And that was that was a really cool weapon. I want to learn how to use that because I'm having a hard time taking down flying enemies. I think the bow is my jam. I, I, I crafted a bow and I finally figured out how to use the different coatings and right. it seems really powerful if you know how to use it. I'm, I'm going to try the bow because I love bows in games. So I, I know mm. that you do have to learn like the different ammo and, co- and coatings and stuff, but I'm, I'm willing to learn. I am a willing pupil. It's way more intuitive than it was in the previous Monster Hunter games, oh, where good. it it felt very slow and not powerful at all. Mm-hmm. Now it actually feels powerful, which I think is a major difference. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm really digging Monster Hunter World. It is such a fun game. It is a very uh, satisfying game. Like I was, Mike was saying, how it kind of satisfies that lizard part of your brain that likes to grind and collect things. And yeah, that's the thing. Some people, some people complain. Oh, I don't want to hunt the same monsters over and over again but i don't mind i kind of like especially mm. with a game like monster hunter where there's so many ways the monsters attack and so many weapons you can use and so many things you can learn with each expedition you go out on i, I really kind of enjoy that feedback loop and as the first time you find a monster you don't know much about it and it feels like a totally new experience but after you fought them a few times mm-hmm. you really start to understand their habits and their patterns and what they're doing and what they're likely to do and what their weak spots are. Yeah. And I think there's a really gratifying aspect to it that I really enjoy. Yeah, and I really like the fact that the more you go out and hunt a monster, the more 
you info you collect about it, and that really helps you the next time you hunt it. Because there is a, that really interesting information loop as well. I was thinking as I was playing it that I I don't think it's going to happen, but I really wish that Pokemon on console would take a few lessons from Monster Hunter. Oh my gosh! Even if they did like a spinoff game, like a mm. Monster Hunter Pokemon, I'd be all over that. Because when I'm going through Monster Hunter World, I'm looking around the jungles and everything, and it feels so alive because mm-hmm. there are bugs, there are little rodents, mm-hmm. there are the herbivores that are being hunted by the apex predators. Mm-hmm. Everything seems to have this niche. And initially, the jungle didn't look that amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the more I played it, the more it just felt like I was in a jungle. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It does have that the thriving ecosystems at every level. It's so complicated and it feels so alive and lush mm-hmm. in a way that I often don't see in video games. And I was just really enjoying walking, especially it really hits you really hard when you're just on an expect a random yeah, expedition. Yeah. I, I enjoy the expeditions the most because like you feel what you do is you fill up your quest with like full like little quests that you can do while you're just kind of farting around and it's just mm. a really good way to earn rewards. Mm-hmm. And, which I would do, or and you would just come across a monster. Maybe you would just watch them doing things. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's kind of I don't know if there's scope within Pokemon to actually make it happen because I know that they would never get rid of the random encounters because they have said explicitly that they like the sense of mystery and mm-hmm. they like the RNG element to it, which is fine. But I kind of imagine a game in which you're walking through a jungle in say in Pokemon. And you're seeing all of the Pokemon doing things, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And they might not even be interactive, but you can watch them doing things. Yeah. And then once you walk into the tall grass, one of them will spring out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that idea. Rather, rather than going into a separate screen. Yeah. If you kind of catch my meaning. Yeah. Or if it's a flying, like it suddenly swoops in from beyond the camera. Uh, it's just some way to make it feel more seamless and give you an even better sense of being in a world where these you are surrounded by these wild monsters because mm-hmm. there's so many of them at this point. Yes, seven hundred. That you can totally do that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would love to see. I understand why they wouldn't do that with the main story, but if they did that as a spinoff game, I think there's like a lot of potential there. If they're making Pokemon fighting games, why the hell not? I I think one of the reasons that Pokemon Snap is so beloved is exactly. because it does pretty much that, right? Yeah. I mean, sure, it's on rails, but it. You're looking at the monsters interacting with one another and being alive and doing things. Yeah, I was about to tell you, like, what if you just kind of took Pokemon Snap and made it more interactive? That's pretty much what you get. It'd be great. I think that if they really put their mind to it, they could make it work within the RPGs, and it would feel like a defining next step. Mm -hmm. And I would even venture to say that they should, and that they might even have to, Mm -hmm. uh, upgrade and evolve the series since it is going to the Nintendo Switch and they have so much more power at their fingertips. I I don't think, I, I, I would be reluctant to completely reinvent the wheel if I were them, but I feel like there has to be some way that they take it to the next level. I, I think the expectations will be that they take the series to the next level with the next game. Yeah, um, you're right. They probably won't do anything as drastic as the Monster Hunter thing, but uh, who knows what they have in, plan- in store for the future. It's one of the big questions yes. I have of this year. Uh, as for Monster Hunter World, uh, I am not normally a PvE type person. I'm more of a PvP type person. 
I'm not the kind of person who is entirely willing to just hunt and craft armor for the the sake of it. Mm -hmm. But there's enough of a story going on there and the hunts themselves are so satisfying and they've got the loop just down to a science that I... I am just enjoying the game. It does not feel forced at all. It doesn't feel like I'm being railroaded into grinding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just feels like something that I can relax and play. And I suspect I will be playing Monster Hunter World for a while. Yeah, me too. Um, of course, you just gave me that code for Dragon Quest Builders, so that's kind of derailed <laughs> me a little bit. But I, I do expect for Monster Hunter World to be a long game for me, like you know, something I'll stick to, go back to back and forth it's a good game to just put down for a bit and go right back to yeah and you're going to japan next week so you're going to have something to play on your plane yeah but i, I think i have to leave a switch here to uh, for my husband though <laughs> what well he, he needs it too he, he, he writes reviews and stuff oh my god but the switch is i know that's what it's made for know, is it's, being it's on the, an airplane the plane machine that's where we first saw it in action on the on the little trailer vroom vroom take are you gonna take I remember last year at this time when they were unveiling the Switch for the first time and they showed somebody seeing, they actually did a mock-up of an airplane yeah. lounge where somebody was sitting. Yes. People were going, man, that guy has a lot of leg room. <laughs> <laughs> now, see, it's no problem for me because I'm five feet tall. I always have leg room. Oh, I'm so jealous of you. <laughs> so one good thing I'm about not, being really short. I'm not that tall, but I mean, I'm also not that short, so. <laughs> yeah, unless you're a hobbit, uh, any plane is just too small. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I think that you should totally steal your Switch and bring it with you. I'll have to negotiate. But if I'm not bringing my Switch, I'm definitely bringing my 3DS. And you know what? I'll probably go back to Monster Hunter Stories. I'm going to start it on there. Ooh. Well, or you could play Radiant Historia. Oh, yeah, that's right. I have that as well. I have a bunch yes, of stuff. Yes, you can. Yeah, you got a lot of stuff to play on that thing. So you should totally do that. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm sure we'll be talking about Monster Hunter in future episodes. Uh, but we're not going to totally overwhelm the episode with that kind of discussion but uh, let's talk very briefly about a little bit of rpg news shall we uh here's a here's a very weird little tidbit that recently came out so on the wii u which is still getting releases to its eShop, yes was released a onto the american virtual console a pretty unknown japanese rpg called necromancer and so you wrote the news article about this nadia Mm -hmm. but i did a little more research into this okay so it was the very first pc engine rpg really i didn't know that part yes and so it was hotly anticipated in japan Mm -hmm. because it was you know the first because the pc engine was a 16-bit 16-bit console it naturally was going to be the next step over what the Famicom was able to produce. And people were really curious to see what an RPG on that system look, would look like. Mm-hmm. And they got Necromancer. <laughs> uh, and looking at it, it's like, and I, I watched a little bit of video too. It's like, well, this is this is certainly an RPG. Um, this was 1988, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm trying to think, was, yes. was Dragon Quest three out by then? Because Dragon Quest three and four are pretty much, in my opinion, the pinnacle of uh, Famicom JRPGs, and I don't think Necromancer quite holds a candle to those. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think so either. Uh, there are a few things holding Necromancer back. I, I think the biggest of them was that it did not have a battery save. Oh dear! Oh goodness gracious! Kill me now! What did they do? Passwords? 
46 character password. Why? And not only that, it didn't always work. <laughs> well, if, first of all, you're going to you're going to screw up the characters for like at least once in your life. Second of all, oh my gosh. Yeah, I just I can't imagine putting an RPG into that kind of like mode because no. um, 46 characters, jeez. Jesus, can you imagine like you just want to play for like half an hour and you got to record a whole new password and ah, gosh. No thank you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so if you want to experience that for firsthand <laughs> in a unlocalized Japanese RPG, it's now available on your Wii U. So I'm guessing they didn't, I'm, I know you can do save uh, states now, but uh, yeah. I'm guessing they, they didn't do any sort of alterations to the, the English release, because as far as I understand... Like, it's I not look, English, it's in Japanese. No, exactly. I looked at the bottom of the, the page and it's like, this game is in Japanese, so uh, if you don't speak Japanese, you might want to reconsider... I think it's pretty cool that they're doing that. It's a really I, I interesting a fun bit curiosity. of like, game history, especially JRPG history. Uh, I didn't know it was the first uh, 16-bit yeah. JRPG, so that's really interesting. But even looking at the graphics, I'm like, it kind of looks like just like Fantasy Star, which, except it doesn't look nearly as interesting as Fantasy Star. It kind of presaged maybe the 16-bit period that was to come, yeah. in that Necromancer is a bit more hardcore, yeah. as it were, than Dragon Quest, uh, because... Initially, it looks kind of like Dragon Quest a little bit, mm-hmm. maybe with somewhat more realistic characters, less stylized. They they went for a more realistic perspective with the characters and the monsters. But when you kill monsters, they like spurt blood. <laughs> That's real hardcore, dude. Rated M for mature. Hey, stuff spurting blood back in 1988 in a video game was pretty hardcore. It was very controversial. I mean, what was it like Splatterhouse that got everyone up in arms? I mean, Splatterhouse for sure was a, a big one. Uh, so yeah, uh, this was a period where games were starting to quote become quote unquote a little more mature, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Necromancer was kind of there. But otherwise, it's been mostly lost to history, partly because it was on a console that was never popular over here, partly because it wasn't that great. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, come on. yeah, especially by that, like I said, at that point in time, the Dragon Quest would have been hitting their stride. So I don't see Japan paying a lot of attention to it, even though the PC Engine was quite popular there. Speaking of other games that are apt to be relatively ignored, uh, this week saw the release of Dissidia Final Fantasy NT yeah. for the PlayStation 4, which... Katie's uh, so Katie was not enthralled with it. Katie was a big Dissidia fan. Yeah, and we were talking a bit about that on the uh, flagship podcast because I'm, I'm a Dissidia fan too. Like, like I said, it's basically fan fiction. It has a lot of fun with itself. It just... It's just like uh, it's very lighthearted. It's very interesting. the The backgrounds are very interesting. Like you can fight on in Dissidia too. You have like, you know, the 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 northern uh, crater from Final Fantasy VII. You have like the Phantom Train from Final Fantasy VI. Just all these real fan servicey things going on in that game. And apparently, most of them are gone for Dissidia NT. That's a disappointment. That is kind of a disappointment. Yeah, I, I think the thing that was the most fun about Dissidia Final Fantasy, especially Duodecim. Mm. Duodecim introduced a story mode, essentially, yeah. where you actually had a, an overworld map and you were walking around and everything. Yeah. And I like the one-on-one duel aspect, yes. to be honest. Yeah. I, I was never sure how I felt about the fact that you were f- essentially flying around. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's totally Dragon Ball Z, but it's... It's very silly, but like I said, it doesn't take itself very seriously. No. 
And it was still fun. Uh, the characters felt appropriately different from one another. Mm-hmm. And especially the the scenes when you would get into your limit breaks or whatever. Yes, those were cool. Felt really cool and did insane amounts of damage and everything. So Yeah, and each one was like exclusive to their character. The way I understand it, what Katie was saying was like, everyone kind of has the same moveset. And what's the point of that? Like in Dissidia... You know, Kane was a dragoon, he used a lance, you know, Cloud used his sword, uh, Tifa used martial arts. That's the whole point. That's who they are. So why take yeah. that away? So NT is based on the arcade game from Japan, which I actually played. Oh, really? Yep, I played the arcade game while I was in Japan, and it, the arcade is a three-on-three rather than a mm-hmm. single-player game, and if you, uh, rather than just a one-on-one duel, and if you go to the arcades you see all of the games lined up and the ideas to get multiple people playing maybe it's kind of in that those kinds of games are very popular in japan right. where you have large-scale multiplayer games uh freaking gundam battle whatever has been the gundam versus games have been around forever mm-hmm. and have always been a 2v2 type thing so i think the culture is definitely there but even back then it, it felt different because you'd be running around the map, which as Katie observed, the maps in Dissidia are m- much more vertical. Yeah. Where the maps in Dissidia Final Fantasy NT are much more flat. Yeah, she said they're kind of horizontal and you can like run up a tree. That's really exciting. Yeah. Uh, and then stuff pops up on the map and you can run over to it. And that's how I think you charge up your limit breaks and that kind of thing. So Yeah, like your summons as well. That, yeah, it's the summon crystals. You go and get the summon crystals. I don't know. I I hate being that person, but I kind of wish that they had stuck with the original formula yeah. and just adapted it for modern consoles because I, I think that it could look really cool, right? Yeah, um, like, I think we were saying how much we'd love just like, hey, give us Smash Brothers with Final Fantasy. I'd play that in two seconds. Yeah. Like, But yeah. Katie was saying how I have no idea if I'm how I'm winning or losing. Like, she doesn't understand how mm. to win or lose. And I'm like, isn't that the most Squaresoft thing ever? Let's make a fighting game where you have no idea if you're winning or losing and it just happens. Uh, I think the matches are actually timed. And oh. so it's possible to run out of time, if I recall correctly. And also, yeah, uh, that is a thing where they pile on so many different systems that it's hard to get a sense of how much damage you're actually doing. Yeah. At any given time. Uh, that was actually kind of the case in Dissidia as well, but at least you kind of had a shorthand of, okay, it says break. Now you can do a ton of damage on it. Yeah, you had, I had like a pretty good idea of what I was doing in Dissidia. It was a mess, don't get me wrong, but it was a fun mess and it still pointed me in the right direction. Yeah, but Dissidia Final Fantasy NT, I mean, it's certainly it's a very nice looking game. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is. And it has some cool things like memorias that you can unlock that has like little cutscenes. So uh, from what Katie was saying, they're pretty uh, trivial, yeah. all things considered. But Not very um, Yeah, exactly. So, And it's primarily an online ranked game, which I don't think really appeals to the audience of this podcast. No, I'm actually wondering who the, who the game is for, because I watched a launch trailer for uh, Dissidia NT and it just kind of like was talking to these quote-unquote hardcore fighting game guys who were like, oh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this game. And are you? Are you really? like? Or I was paid to really look I, forward I was, to this game. I was game. paid to really look forward to this game, which is in the shadow of Street Fighter V and uh, Dragon Ball Fighter Z. But yeah. And to your earlier point, though, I can't believe they haven't done Smash Brothers Final Fantasy. I know, right? Like, oh, my God, can you imagine four-on-four four Final Fantasy 
battle royale, I would die for that. I think we would all die for that. And, and they can do we've it. We've already we've already got proof of concept. Where they put Cloud in Final Fan in Smash Brothers. Yeah. Oh my! I, when I think back to that reveal, it still blows my mind. Yeah, and you have such a large cast and so many different people to play pull from. So many rich DLC opportunities. Yeah, and I mean, and let's face it, Square Enix is really good at number one fan service and number two nostalgic fan service. They have it yeah, down to a science. Exactly. I, I just think that it's really crying out for a 2D kind of uh, some, something similar to Smash Brothers, mm-hmm. uh, two on two or four player game where you can pick a, the characters from the whole different series, dramatically simplify the move sets, uh, maybe have something equivalent to the the crystals that will pop up the final that you smash can stuff. turn on and off. The final smash, make the final smash like the limit breaks. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And here's the thing, like... And the assist trophies could be summons. There you go, there you go. But, yeah, like, so many people have tried to emulate Smash Brothers, like Sony tried that with, the, what was it, All-Stars. And they, they don't quite have it because, they, let's face it, nost- uh, Sony does not have that same nostalgic appeal yet like Nintendo does, but I think Final Fantasy does have a good chance of matching Nintendo's yeah. nostalgia factor. They could do it. PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royale was always going to have a harder time because the stable of characters is kind of a weird fit for that kind of style of a game. Yeah, it kind of is. Like, hey, Sackboy versus Kratos. Oh, okay. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> and here comes Nathan Drake. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. Uh, yeah. But Okay. On that note... Yes, Final Fantasy Smash Brothers. Make it happen, folks. Please, but please. On that note, uh, we have a special guest coming on, Nadia. So uh, Ben Lindbergh over at The Ringer did a really in-depth mm-hmm. retrospective of Panzer Dragoon Saga on the occasion of its 20th anniversary. I had him come on the show and talk a little bit about his experience playing Panzer Dragoon Saga and also the history of the game. So that's coming up next, and then we'll do our Cosmic Star Heroin Report. All right, I'm now here with Ben Lindbergh, who works for The Ringer and hosts the podcast Achievement Oriented, along with Jason Concepcion, uh, covers the games beat over at The Ringer. And usually The Ringer is focused more on mainstream stuff, but I was surprised and pleased the other day to see that you did a really massive retrospective on an RPG that sadly has been a little bit lost to time, and that is Panzer Dragoon Saga for the Sega Saturn, which is in its 20th anniversary. Yes, that's right. I don't think my editor expected it to be quite as (laughs) massive as it was, but fortunately she let me get away with it. I really got to know what the look on her face was when he said, so there's this game that came out for the Sega Saturn 20 years ago. Nobody's ever heard of it. Can I write uh, three, three, 4,000 words on it? Not the easiest sell. Yeah. Fortunately, she's in LA and I'm in New York. So I don't know what the expression on her face was, but uh, on Slack, at least, she was pretty accepting. But yeah, we're doing this year-long retrospective series on all of the, the great games of 1998 since it was such a legendary year. And so I let off the series with Pedro Dragoon Saga and probably would have been better if the calendar had cooperated and given us, you know, Metal Gear Solid or hmm. Ocarina of Time to start the series. But no, Panzer Dragoon Saga was up first chronologically. So it's up first in the series. And I didn't want to slight it just because it's not quite the sales force that many of those other games were. 
Speaking uh, as somebody who's in the kind of the hardcore gaming community, your piece definitely made uh, some waves because I, I think that even though it's relatively unknown among the mainstream populace, among hobbyists at least, Panzer Dragoon or uh, Saga is extremely well-respected and kind of held up as a kind of a lost classic, as it were. Yes, definitely. And and that's why I wanted to not only write about it, but play it. Because unlike most of the people who'll be writing about games in this series, I mean, in many cases, they're games that we played when they first came out. We've maybe replayed them many times in the interim. I had never played Pandra Dragoon Saga. I did not have a, a Sega Saturn until later, actually, when I got one used. But I had never played it. And I thought, Hopefully that would be a, a valuable perspective to bring to the game because after 20 years, often your opinions are kind of colored by nostalgia and, you know, you played a game when you were 12 or something and you can't really shake what you thought of it when you were 12. So I thought coming to it 20 years later and playing it for the first time, I would hopefully have an unbiased view of the game's greatness. And I, I hope that's the case because I, I really did love it and cherish it almost the way that I would wow. a game that, that I've loved for a lot longer. That's really amazing. So like, I, I'm curious, as somebody who's who came in 20 years later, what really stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, so many things. You know, obviously you have to get past the the cosmetic level of, oh, this is a, a Sega Saturn game and what looked amazing in January 1998 does not look quite so amazing in January 2018. But beyond that, I think the mechanics of the game just feel so fresh. There was no point at which I, I felt like I was playing an old school game really aside from the visuals the actual core gameplay felt as dynamic as i imagine it must have at the time perhaps not as groundbreaking but that's the other interesting thing is that i would notice parallels in the story for instance or the way in in panzer dragoon you bond with the dragon that you ride and these are things that i think were unprecedented or with few precedents at the time and playing them now I can make these connections I can say oh well this is like the last guardian or this is like some aspect of the story from horizon zero dawn you know some recent game that was lauded for being creative and original and certainly was but in many ways Panzer Dragoon Saga got there long before those games did and you know the the technical achievements of it I think were considerable certainly it had you know, four discs at the time to contain the amount of audio and video that were in this game. I mean, this was full voice recording for everything, not just the cutscenes, but even the NPCs that you would encounter around the world. This was, you know, a few years before Final Fantasy attempted anything like that. And I think it was largely a product of the fact that the team that developed it had never made an RPG before and really didn't know what they had bitten off when they started this project. And so they kind of had to reinvent the genre in a sense. And so <laughs> it is an RPG, but I like to think that it's not so beholden to RPG tropes and traditions that, you know, you you end up kind of feeling the formula and some of it seems stale. It, it still feels very new and vibrant to me, even all this time later. It's interesting that uh, Metal Gear Solid came out the same year because yes. you mentioned that it had, in the, in the piece, you mentioned that it had like 90 minutes of cutscenes mm -hmm. and opens with a 20-minute cutscene. And this was <laughs> uh, kind of the, a similar path to what Metal Gear Solid was blazing 
around the same time. And uh, yeah. Metal Gear Solid gets all of the credit for being really groundbreaking in that regard. But people don't mm-hmm. kind of notice that Panzer Dragoon Saga got there first. Yeah, well, people played Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> so that has a, a way of burnishing a game's reputation. You know, the the story of Panzer Dragoon Saga is sort of tragic and and poignant on multiple levels, which was what really attracted me to this piece. It It wasn't just a pure this is what made the game great, but it was sort of a, a human story because in a lot of ways, the development of the game mirrored the game itself, its story and its environment because you had this overworked, overstressed team in Japan, Team Andromeda at Sega that was developing the game and they had tragedy strike. I mean, there was just an incredible intolerable crunch where they were hardly sleeping for months at a time to hear the the creator tell it. And one of the team members was killed in an accident during development. Another one took his own life during development, not necessarily directly because of the development, but certainly the, the strain of the game may have contributed to that. And on the other side of the Pacific and Sega of America, you had a company that after having been riding high during the Genesis days and stealing some of Nintendo's market share, the Saturn really flopped in the U.S. And at that point, Sega was transitioning to the Dreamcast and the tap was really turned off for the Saturn. And so they hardly made any copies of the game. There were two people working on localizing the game in the U.S. And they were kind of this skeleton crew and they were describing to me, you know, working in empty offices essentially with no supervision just because the company had downsized so much amid the hard times for Sega. So you had this sort of personal tragedy, the the lead editor and, and story translator in the US had just broken up with the, the love of his life to that point, which he said impacted the way that he viewed the story too. So it had all this layers that it had all of these layers that really, I think, resonated with the game itself, which is sort of a, a story of loss and uh, a post-apocalyptic barren world where, you know, people are just trying to struggle to survive. So there's sort of this thematic resonance there. I find it incredible that it came out in America at all, given <laughs> yeah. where Sega was, the Sega Saturn was dead in 1998, mm-hmm. like pretty much full stop. And Final Fantasy VII had only come out a few months before. It was it came out in like I believe August 1997, and it it was a huge hit and everything. But to uh, but JRPGs certainly were not a mainstream thing. No. Certainly not to the extent that they would become later in 1998. So no. it's amazing to me that this happened at all. Period. <laughs> yeah, I was talking, emailing with the producer of the game for Sega Europe, where the game came out, but barely they made something like a thousand copies and he was talking about yeah there there just wasn't that much of a a market in the west at that time jrpgs weren't really looked on as marketable commodities by these companies often and so he really had to fight to get the game released at all and you're right at this point in the saturn's life cycle death cycle Games were hardly coming out, and when they did, they just weren't making many copies. So they did a run of about 20,000 copies. Those sold out very quickly, and then they made 2,000 more, 5,000 more, and and that was it. And so it's extremely hard to get the game today. You have to pay hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to get an actual copy of the game on the secondary market, or you can try to use an emulator, which is what I did. But you're right. It is sort of amazing that it is out there at all hard as it is to obtain today. 
Yeah, it's one of those games. Uh, Valkyrie Profile is another one, but mm. Panzer Dragoon Saga is an even bigger one where it's just not available on any of the digital, as a digital download, which no. makes it so much harder to get a hold of. And, and that's really a shame because you would think that it would find a ready home on, say, the PS4 or like PSN or Xbox uh, Live or something like that. Mm -hmm. Judging by my mentions, there are many people out there who wish they could play it more easily than they can. But yeah, unfortunately, the the source code of the game has been lost, which just adds an additional level of intrigue and tragedy to this game at some point after the development team andromeda was shuttered immediately and there was a lot of downsizing and restructuring going on and somehow the the code the source code for the game was just was just (laughs) vanished somehow and so there would be no way to really do an hd remaster or a straight up port you'd have to build the game from the ground up and i don't know whether that would be a a financial proposition that would make sense at this point although you're right i mean the game is still a, a staple of every list of you know the best x games you've never played the best x rpgs you've never played so uh, there would be interest out there i would think the soundtrack was just rearranged and re-released for the 20th anniversary so i would love to see it come out in some form but there's just no prospect of that happening on any kind of near horizon something that really stood out to me was the localization which yeah uh the, the localizers were talking about how they sort of took a lot of liberties with the script. Mm-hmm. And in light of especially a lot of the controversies that were surrounding, say, Fire Emblem Fates, where people were getting very angry that it wasn't a one-to-one translation, it yeah. stood out to me as uh, a, a tactic, I suppose, that localization, lo- localizers were really kind of going out of their way to add a little something extra to the script to flesh out certain story points. Mm-hmm. I, I was uh, I found that pretty interesting. Yeah, so did I. And there may be people out there who are upset that it, the North American version, European version weren't more faithful to the Japanese version. I don't know. There just were so few people who played it at all that I guess there just weren't <laughs> that many people who could be upset about it. But I also don't think people were thinking about in those terms back then. I mean, yeah, we were right. getting such bad scripts from like Final Fantasy VII that exactly. I think we were happy to get a coherent script at all. Yeah, I don't think companies were were taking the care with localization and translation then that they tend to do today. And so I think... You know, this was done by two guys, Chris Lukic and Matt Underwood, who were huge fans of the previous Pantry Dragoon games. And they didn't know that so few copies were going to come out before the game actually came out. They told me they weren't sure whether that information was just sort of hidden from them so that they wouldn't be too demoralized as they were working on it. But they were, you know, really working themselves to the bone trying to get this thing done on a pretty short timeline. And because there had been so much downsizing, they just had so little supervision that no one was really checking them. If they were changing something here or there, they weren't really accountable to anyone and they weren't really communicating with Team Andromeda in Japan because the team had been dissolved by that point. So there was no one really to exercise that kind of strict control over them. And fortunately, they loved the game and they wanted it to be the best that it possibly could be. So they took it very seriously, which, you know, you could imagine it being a very sloppy rush job just given the resources that were available at that time. But I think the right people were in place. And 
yeah, you know, they added some touches of humor to it. The most significant thing that they seem to have done is to make the central romance of the story a little bit more explicit. And the creator of the game, Yukio Furutsugi, was telling me that in the Japanese version, that romance is a little more thinly sketched, I think is what he said. It's a little more subtle and I guess that the thought was that that wouldn't fly so well in the American market, that maybe we need those sort of things telegraphed to us a little more clearly. And so that's what happened. That was sort of brought up to the forefront a little bit. But, you know, they were telling me they just, I mean, there were hundreds or thousands of pages of, of text here because there's so much dialogue and NPCs and they would get really shoddy translations of a lot of it, or there would be huge chunks of the script just missing. And so they had to come up with all these roundabout ways to try to figure out what went where and what was saying what. And it sounds like it's just incredibly arduous, just a real ordeal. So I I think, again, it's a semi-miracle that it, it came together as well as it did. They also added a South Park reference in 1998. (laughs) Yeah, they did. And I noticed that as I was playing. And the interesting thing they told me was that that was almost like a a guerrilla marketing campaign. They thought that if they stuck a South Park reference in there, people would notice it and post about it on forums, which they say did happen. But I mean, these localizers were almost handling the promotion of the game themselves because the marketing development had shrunk and was focused on the Dreamcast. And there were like two print ads for Panther Dragoon Saga, and that was about it. So the localizer was taking it on himself because he thought the game was so great and wanted to champion it. He was just emailing bloggers who had expressed some interest in Panzer Dragoon and sending them screenshots and trying to get them interested just because there was no one else doing that sort of thing. So again, you know, there's more to that story. It seems like it's just a little Easter egg or an inside joke, but there was actually a a purpose to that too. Reading your retrospective, it struck me that it, it struck me as sad that people don't know Saga's story uh, that much better because better than they do because it really was a period where games were kind of really stretching their boundaries and mm-hmm. trying to be a lot more ambitious. Uh, Final Fantasy Tactics, right around the same time, was going for a similar vein of uh, kind of Game of Thrones style backstabbing and yeah. and all that kind of stuff and moral ambig- ambiguity and mm-hmm. meanwhile Final Fantasy 7 was totally screwing with your mind and here comes Panzer <laughs> Dragoon Saga with kind of a spiritual story and nobody's yeah. really a good person and so much going on in this story. Yeah, that's right. And I I think that it held up even today. I mean, we're used to a more cinematic feel to our games today, maybe a more mature or complex sort of story. And yet this game from 20 years ago, from a time when that was the exception rather than the rule, still really held up. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say that. uh, Sorry. Uh, I was going to say that I actually think that games have actually become a little less complex because Mm. they're aiming for a a mainstream audience, and so they tend to tell very straightforward stories. Um, I think one of the reasons that Nier Automata really burst off the screen for people last year was because it was very much in that vein of late 90s JRPG kind of storytelling where yeah. they were really trying to get esoteric and interesting and weird. And I think Panzer Dragoon Saga kind of falls into that as well. 
Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned Nier because the director of Nier Yokotaro, I I thought I had finally found someone who would cite Panther Dragoon Saga <laughs> as an influence on them because he had mentioned being a fan of the Panther Dragoon series in an interview last year. But when I reached him, I asked him about it. He said, no, I, I like the shooting Panther Dragoon <laughs> games. I've never actually played Panther Dragoon Saga. So even someone who is a, an acknowledged fan of the series maybe never played this particular game. But you're right. It was really ambitious, especially for this company that was coming from a rail shooter to think that they could then go from that to a full-fledged RPG with this epic story and these, you know, 3D visuals and just the audio visual fidelity and the soundtrack was groundbreaking in a number of ways too. And, you know, it's, it's less of a, a hardcore RPG in some ways than many of the games your audience would be familiar with. You know, it's it's a shorter game despite the four discs. It's a game that you can beat in 20 hours, maybe even less. And, you know, I, I just, I appreciated it because I think it strips away a lot of the elements of RPGs that can be tiresome at times. I mean, at times they're, they're welcome as well, but, you know, they're just isn't a lot of tedious travel here. There are no fetch quests, really. You don't kind of start slow and have to gain that feeling of being powerful. I mean, there is a sense of progression, but you start out on a dragon that can kill things. So there's no real slow start that you really have to to ramp up to. And, you know, the the battle system, it is turn-based, but it, it barely feels that way. And so someone was telling me that the producer of the game in Europe was saying that often he will get frustrated with turn-based battle systems, but this one just felt so dynamic to him that it it didn't. And really, it just has this cinematic feel to it because your dragon is swooping all over the place and it, there's a, a really deep level of, of strategy to it, and yet it is also very intuitive. You know, you, you just get the hang of it right away, and it reveals all this hidden depth, but it's not like something where you're constantly having to dive into menus and read tutorials to figure out some arcane aspect of the battle system it's it's all right there and there's this positioning aspect to it so you're you know not only just sort of slugging it out with your enemy and seeing whose health bar depletes first but you're constantly revolving around the arena and you're attacking weak points and you're avoiding their strengths and so it it really just I described it as an RPG that would appeal to people who think they don't like RPGs, which is probably not anyone listening. But I think (laughs) that, you know, if it were to come out again somehow, someday, I think maybe it would find a a warm reception among people who might not think that they would like a game like this. Yeah, you wouldn't think that a rail shooter could easily become an RPG. And (laughs) uh, not exactly two things that not exactly two tastes that you would expect to taste well together, but <laughs> somehow they actually pull it off. And yeah. you said that effectively they had to reinvent the wheel. And they really did because, I mean, at this time, turn-based random encounter RPGs in the vein of Final Fantasy or Dragon Quest on console were the accepted form. And mm-hmm. we hadn't really deviated outside of that. A couple of years later, I, I already mentioned Valkyrie Profile. They would start to do some of that stuff. Uh, we would start to get more interesting takes on the whole thing. I, I think Tales of Fantasia was kind of an action thing at this time. But none of them were the radical reinvention that Panzer Dragoon Saga was. 
Yeah, and this was a question that they were really wrestling with during development. How do we fuse this kind of kinetic action that Panzer Dragoon is known for and shooting and movement with a, a turn-based RPG battle system? And somehow they did it. And I don't know that, you know, there have certainly been RPGs since with more active elements and action RPGs and, and that sort of thing. But this feels unique to me. I, I don't know that I've ever played anything exactly like it. And it was quite a, a technical challenge at the time because not only can you choose classes essentially for your dragon, but it's not like a game where you have a, a skill tree and you can devote upgrade points to a, a certain skill. And then, you know, over time, you gradually gravitate toward one end of the spectrum or another. You can morph your dragon at any time in real time during a battle. And so if you want a more defense oriented or offense oriented dragon or someone who, you know, has more kind of ability to regenerate your your action gauge and, and cast these powerful spells and abilities you can do that at any time with just these little sliders that you adjust in the menu and there's a visual uh, component to that too so i think they said they had to almost like model every kind of dragon that you could potentially choose at any moment at the same time just to account for the fact that you could change the look and appearance of your dragon at will so it was really innovative at the time and I wish I could say that it had a great influence. I, I don't know that it did. I think that a lot of the things that it created, that it did first, maybe other games have happened upon later. But because so few people played it, there aren't that many people you come across who say, yeah, I borrowed this from Panther Dragoon Saga. I was inspired by Panther Dragoon Saga. It's sort of this little insular world unto itself that I wish had had more of an impact, but as it is, it's just sort of this singular time capsule that feels very ahead of its time, even 20 years later. And then at the end of the game, it invites you to turn off the system and effectively <laughs> erase its protagonist from history. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's a, a breaking the fourth wall component here where Throughout the game, you've been hearing about this divine visitor, this mysterious divine visitor, and everyone's searching for the divine visitor. And then at the end, you realize you are the divine visitor. You are the animating force of this world. You are the one who is kind of, you know, the puppeteer here who is controlling these characters. And then, yeah, you you feel this sort of sadness when eventually you do have to start the game over or turn off the system. And then, you know, this whole world that you've grown attached to blinks out so this game really you know it made me feel guilty at times there are times in the game when I just felt bad about myself and my choices as a player and the characters I had been identified with uh, identifying with and then yeah at the end of the game when you realize that well this this whole world depends on you and without you it's nothing and it goes away uh that that is a it's a jarring ending and you know maybe some games have done similar things since but i don't know at the time whether there was a, a lot of precedent for that approach I recognize that it's totally pie in the sky and will almost certainly never happen, but I thought it was pretty interesting that you got their thoughts on what a, a remake would potentially look like if it were to ever happen. Right. Yeah. Not only would uh, Futatsugi <laughs> like to do a, a VR Panther Jacoon, which would be would great, certainly, but, you know, he was talking about how he'd like to make it more open world and have the player have more choice. I mean, there are a few dialogue options in the game where you can 
choose to do something or not, but really you're forced into a, a single choice. So it it feels like a throwback in that way, but not in an unwelcome way. I mean, it's it's not entirely linear. You can fly around this world and explore it, but it was really almost a relief not to have a world that is just overpopulated with collectibles and quests. You know, it it feels sort of barren in a way that makes sense with the story. But, you know, he was mentioning, of course, there would be an online component, most likely if it were made today, that each player might have a sort of parallel instance of the world that existed on its own. So he's still thinking ambitious thoughts for Panzer Dragoon. I'm just not sure that there's a, a publisher out there that will help him make those a reality. I'm sure that it'll come out before the Final Fantasy VII remake. <laughs> At this point, that's that's possible. But yeah, both on the Japanese end of the development and the North American end of the development, people told me that this is the most grueling project that they have ever gone through, that it pushed them to extremes that no other project has pushed them to, and that it's sort of served as this yardstick for them ever since, because no matter what challenge they encounter, they think, well, it won't be as bad as Panther Dragoon Saga, and yet... Out of all of that challenge, I mean, I, I guess art can come from conflict and constraints, and that certainly happened in this case. I, I'd encourage anyone who can find a way to play it to go play it because it's it's not just a, a nostalgia exercise. I, I really think it's a game that a lot of people would love and a lot of people would learn from. And you should go read about it regardless over on The Ringer, which is uh, home to just a really fantastic retrospective and he went to a lot of different sources to uh, get uh, kind of the I want to say the definitive uh, retrospective (laughs) on Panzer Dragoon Saga so yeah go check that out Um, and uh, can you give us a hint as to what you're working on next for your big 1998 series yeah well I'm actually I'm handing off uh, some of the next pieces in the series to other writers it's sort of a a staff-wide effort that I'm kind of coordinating but on the RPG end, we do have Xenogears coming up very oh, soon. So, <laughs> so uh, I will put you in touch with our writer who's working on that. Maybe you can get another interview out of it. <laughs> I like that. All mm-hmm. right, Ben Lindbergh, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, we will look forward to reading you on The Ringer. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks to Ben Lindbergh for coming on the show. That was a fun conversation covering kind of the history of uh, Panzer Dragoon Saga game that was sadly kind of ignored. I I assume that you didn't have a Sega Saturn, Nadia. I did not have a Saturn. And um, I, of course, Panzer Dragoon Saga as a JRPG fan is is like the game I've always wanted to play. Um, But I've never really gone through the shady means of doing so. I don't blame anyone who who has because, let's face it, you're not going to play the game any other way. I do remember... Though people were pissed at the ad campaign that we had over here for Panzer Dragoon Saga. I don't know if you remember it, but on the back of some game magazines, there was like, you could cut out a mask of Edge's face and say, and the ad basically said, hey, this game is so rare, you're not going to be able to play it. So here, you can pretend to be Edge. (laughs) And people were so mad about that, and I don't blame them. Imagine owning a Saturn and like hearing about this fantastic game that you're not going to get to play and Sega screwed you right up until the very end. I thought it was crazy that that game even came out here, and we talked a little bit about that in the discussion. But 
In any case, uh, let's talk about a game that uh, is a little bit more available than Panzer Dugan Saga. That's the third episode of the Cosmic Star Heroine Report. Uh, the last time uh, we left off, we I had just made it to the Rebel Base. Mm-hmm. And uh, as soon as I picked up, uh, the Rebel Base immediately came under attack because, of course. <laughs> That's just what happens to Rebel Bases. Yeah, like I was in there for five minutes and then all of a sudden, I, I think I watched a news report about the terrorist attack that we discussed in the previous yeah. episode. The terrorists, of course, being our heroes. And then immediately, Director Steele and his cronies come in and are like, Hello! <laughs> How you doing? We were leading you this whole time. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you get to fight uh, the gal, the sniper gal, who tries to snipe you while you're giving the speech. And it was yeah. actually a fairly easy battle. Yeah, I kicked her ass. Uh, I found the the mechs, the little robot she had with her, were a little bit harder than she was. Like, there's this one, there's this one mech that looks like a floor cleaner. Like when I was a janitor, I used to use it. It's like one thing you push and it cleans <laughs> the floor. Uh, those things are bastards because they're hooked up with like six guns. But she herself was like, oh well. You're dead. You suck. So I I think that I've kind of found my party. Mm, okay, who is it? Uh, Alyssa. Mm-hmm. Chan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sue. Mm-hmm. And I can't really pronounce her name, but she has Jordi LaForge's oh, Jordi yeah, LaForge's visor. It's well, it's like the... it's pronounced, I think, Arit. Okay, yeah, she's the rebel leader. A R E T E. So she's pretty interesting because she has a drone. Yes. And she has some really good uh, buffs that she can do. But the, mostly what she does is damage over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you have the right elemental drone, you're guaranteed to be doing large amounts of damage against an enemy party pretty much all the time. Just on a turn-by-turn basis without really having to do anything. And then in the meantime, she can support the rest of the party. Yeah, um, I actually haven't had the chance to uh, to buy more drones yet. I just have the ice drone. So I found her a little confusing to use. Um, but I think, I think I'm getting the hang of it. But yes, you're right. She kind of does like that damage over time thing. And you have the option to activate the drone whenever it's her turn or you can do something else. It's, it's also, just a, a different way to play. She also has programs that help kind of buff the entire party. Mm-hmm. I got a program for her called, I think, Rebel, which mm-hmm. allows you to throw a Molotov that does mm-hmm. massive fire damage, <laughs> area fire damage, and also Alliance, because her hackitude is extremely high. Uh, she okay. can access the Alliance ability, which uh, raises your entire party's attack. Yeah, so she can do all the hacking. I noticed that uh, I like using Lauren, but I noticed her hackitude is very low, which isn't very good for learning new skills. Lauren's Okay. I think that she's a really good DPS character, does a lot of damage, uh, and I think you have to be willing to really focus on her explicitly as a character to build up. Mm-hmm. And Robert, uh, sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, I I really like the fact her regen spell is so OP. Oh, the regen <laughs> spell is extremely good, yes. So I, I feel like I have a nice sense of security when she's in my party. Though it becomes less overpowered as you move on through the game. I was wondering about that, yeah. Yeah, because I have her in my party right now um, in the area that I'm in. And the regen spell is okay, but I still managed to accidentally lose Sue. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for Sue, uh, I have him doing like 6,000 damage. <laughs> it's a lot of damage in this game because what I do is turn one, I have him do his counterattack. 
Turn yeah. two, I have him defend. Turn three, I have him use the hyper thing. Yeah. And so he goes into hyper mode, but because you're going around to the other turns, he's in hyper mode the entire time. Yeah. And so, and because he defended and taunted in the previous turn, the enemies all go for him. And so he runs over and immediately punches them for like 1200 damage, <laughs> possibly more if I've been able to use inspire on him. Right. And then once it finally comes back around to him, I have this, uh, I have this one attack and forgive me, I don't remember the exact attack. But it's an attack that does large amounts of damage at the expense of lowering your defense. And mm-hmm. because he's in hyper mode, and his style is up by this time, and he's had his attack buffed, he can run in and basically punch somebody in the face for like 4,000, 5,000 damage. Send them into the stratosphere, basically. Yeah, it's really remarkable. And uh, that, and if I... If somehow that's not enough, uh, I can always <laughs> circle back and do it again. <laughs> we can we can dance this dance all night, baby. So, with this party as it is right now, like Chan is major healing person. She just mm-hmm. does tons and tons of healing on my party, and because I attach the healing program to her, right? Uh, that will heal the entire party. And also, she has the ability to cure ailments. She's a mm-hmm. great support character. Like, you initially think that she's kind of... You, th- you initially think, oh, she's doing a lot of damage thanks to her fire gun and everything. And she can do a lot of damage, she actually. Can. But she's, she's extremely versatile. She's very well balanced. I like her. Um, I stopped using Finn because he takes way too long to get, like, good attacks in, I think. Uh, sorry, who He's does? Got, like, a long... Finn. Oh, yeah. Uh, Finn I don't get as a character. Yeah, he's kind of cute, but that's it. Yeah, he is cute. And I I think I was discussing in the previous episode that I really like characters with guns. Mm -hmm. But I I don't know. Finn as a character doesn't really necessarily do it with me because he's kind of a complicated character. Uh, He seems kind of... He likes to use debuffs if i recall correctly so he does disarm he does stun the actual attacks don't do that much damage i found myself using his base shoot attack yeah i did that too but he takes so long to charge up like he's got like five meters or something in his his hyper bar and so anything you do until then is going to be crap damage yeah i'm sure that robert can tell me exactly how i'm supposed to be using finn but please do because i'm a little yeah. bit confused i thought even his uh he has an attack that that um powers up the more you use it it's like the all-consuming fire attack but it's very weak uh when you use it if you don't use it with a strong hyper but um I, you're supposed to like stack damage the more you use it the more damage it does but you have to recharge it so you got to kind of put that extra move in there it's not like uh it's not like sue's faint which stacks as you go along and I... you use it uh, what party are you kind of favoring at the moment? Uh, I am favoring uh, Elise, of course. Um, let's see who else. I, I'd go back and forth on Dave. I'd go back and forth on Lauren. Definitely like Sue. Um, and I, I'm not sure about the rebel leader. Uh, as you say, she's a she's a more of a damage across uh, the t- across time character. But I think if I use her more for buffs. I might find like more of a, a companion in her. So Definitely much, Sue, though. So much of making a character really sing, I think, has to do with what weapons you equip to them, the booster stats, and what programs you give them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, 
I, I, I actually, the first time I played the game, I only discovered a little bit later how valuable the programs are. I was just kind of messing around mm. at first. So after the rebel base is attacked, you have to go through a a dungeon in which essentially you are getting to a spaceship and mm-hmm. escaping from the Leviathan, which is underwater. And so you fight a lot of, I want to categorize them as mini bosses, but they're relatively easy to kill. Yeah, is this uh, in the uh, the base with the ghosts and stuff? Like yes, the base with the ghosts. First, you're fighting poltergeists because they're a thing in this game. Yeah, uh, apparently. Uh, I remember Sue said something really funny about them, but yeah, they're Sue's a afraid of ghosts. Apparently, Sue is terrified of ghosts, and that's um, actually funny. He around that time of the game, he gets an attack that is really good against ghosts. Yes. And once you complete that dungeon, which is a relatively straightforward dungeon, you're just kind of running through and you're hitting switches and opening things up and moving on uh, and then fighting lots of little mini bosses. Once you complete that dungeon, you get access to your ship. You get a ship yes. in this game. It's like the Normandy kind of. Yeah, it's basically uh, the head guy, Steel. He's basically, quote unquote, steal his ship. He steal, steal ship. That's really great. And it's a nice ship. It is a very nice ship. And I love having my own spaceship in a game. It's got a rec room. Uh, I was walking around um, seeing all the characters. I I talked to them. Yeah, I talked to Dave, who was sitting at the bar. And I actually got a friendship achievement. Oh, cool. How did you manage that? Well, I I don't know. Like, I just talked to him and it said friendship. (laughs) You talked to him? And it made me kind of wonder if there was some kind of relationship thing going on in the background. So, that'd be cute. Uh, it'd be like, what if they had a dating component? What if I could date, um, what if I could date Zazorv, the alien bounty hunter? Bounty hunter. I, I would totally date Zazorv. I'm all in on that, but yeah, it's at this 69. point. I, I I mentioned that it's like going over to the Mass Effect's Normandy, the spaceship. It 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 does take on a little bit of a Mass Effect character, I want to say, because mm-hmm. or a Bioware character, because at this point you have a choice between going to two planets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I chose to go to the Firefly planet. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the desert planet? that I, I think I've visited it before. Yes, it's a desert planet that's kind of the Wild West with robots. Right, right. Yeah, so it's a little bit it's a little bit Dark Tower, because mm. in Dark Tower, that was the whole thing, is you're in the Wild West, but there are also robots from a bygone age and stuff like that. Did you ever read Dark Tower? Believe it or not, I have not. Um, even though I'm a big King fan, I have not read the Dark Tower series. Oh, then you should, because there's... Yeah, I know it's something, it's totally my jam, but uh, I I can tell you like the, the history of Flag and every other King book, but I don't know anything about him in Dark Tower. So to summarize, uh, Gun, the thing that's most interesting about Dark Tower, and I'm sorry to go on this tangent, but I love talking about Dark Tower, is that it was written across the entirety of his career. So you can see his, you can see yeah. all of the different phases of Stephen King and all of the different books all yeah, the way up that, until like I 2007. Know that, like, how, I know that how his books link up to Dark Tower. Uh, I'm not really happy with the way some of them have been retconned to go into Dark Tower. Like mm. The Talisman, which is one of my favorite fantasy books of all time, has been retconned to go into that universe. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of clumsy, dudes. But yeah, it is definitely um, like it, I think, connects to Dark Tower, like the turtle. So yeah, it all it all connects. Yeah, Gunslinger is an interesting kind of short story. But it really picks up in the second book with Drawing of the Three. And then mm-hmm. I think Drawing of the Three and then the one the, the third book, The Wastelands, and the fourth book um, are just fan-freaking-tastic. I mm-hmm. really like them, especially the fourth book. The fourth book is 
phenomenal. I, I would say it's the best one of uh, the entire bunch. And then he took a long break, a very long break, almost died. That's right. He almost died. He got hit by a car. Got afraid that he was never going to finish the series. And, but this was post almost getting hit by a, a truck, Stephen King. Yeah. And for better or worse, that element figures heavily into the last uh, three books. Um, and I, I like book five a lot until the end where what a twist and then (laughs) book six is weird because it's connective tissue between book five and seven and then seven is redeemed by the end which i think Mm. it's seven and i have a lot of issues with seven but by the end with the the finale i just i really really enjoyed the finale i I thought it was the perfect ending Uh, i thought i was like okay yeah cool and i'm just really sad that the that the movie didn't work out and goddamn it just yeah. turned into a freaking TV show. Are you kidding me? Well, they did that with the stand and that was a mixed result, I guess. Do this HBO. Don't do Westworld. Do Dark Tower. God, are you stupid? Okay. Are they still doing Westworld? Yeah. Uh, Westworld is okay, I guess. I mean, it'll get a lot of hype when it comes out with season two, but okay, that was a hell of a digression. Anyway, you're in like Dark Tower world. You're in, <laughs> you're in Firefly world, etc. Um, and you actually go to a party, <laughs> uh, which I I had to look back. Uh, outside of Final Fantasy VI, I'm trying to think of other RPGs, where console RPGs in particular, where you go to a party of some sort, where you get dressed up as a character. Sorry? Skyrim. I remember uh, to the Thalamore were having a party, and I was mm. supposed to infiltrate them. Yeah, you're sneaking through. Yeah. Where in Dragon Age Inquisition, you're actually getting dressed up for a mask ball, and the same thing happens in Witcher 3. Oh, that's fancy. Yeah, and so, and it's a great opportunity to, in those kinds of games, it's a great opportunity for character development and character interaction and a certain very role-playing type of gameplay, because, you know, it's the kind of thing where characters are asking you very loaded questions, and you have to think really hard on what your response is going to be, because you don't want right. to, I don't know, blow your cover or whatever. Yeah, those are always kind of fun, a nice little fun deviation, but you're right, they're really good for character building as well. Yeah, but because Cosmic Star Heroine doesn't focus on that aspect so much as it focuses on combat and everything, mostly you're running through and you're trying to figure out how to get into the office of the of this one character that you're trying to make contact with, and mm-hmm. it's actually a somewhat complicated process that involves you going into the secret passages and overhearing people talking about what the password is going to be to get into his office. <laughs> yeah. That's and then funny. once you finally get into the office, uh, it does the thing that, uh, uh, the thing that I hate the most to get in an RPG, the prison sequence. Oh, you get thrown in jail and you got to break your way out. Yeah. Uh, I hate any video game where I'm thrown into jail and they take away my stuff Oh. and it's like okay they're taking away my stuff and i gotta figure out how to get out of the cell and there's some kind of talk to the right person or do the right thing or whatever and i always i'm and prisons are never that much of a fun thing to be fighting in no i agree they're always kind of dank and, and drippy as they should be but uh is there a stealth element because that's the thing i hate most about prison break no thank god and okay, actually good. to its credit cosmic star heroine doesn't beat around the bush with the with the prison it's like okay you're in prison oh this guy lets you out sweet oh and i got my stuff okay here we go and now you're in a series of caves fighting robots 
Okay, and, I can deal with that. And the robots, there's a definite difficulty spike here because you, uh, the robots are now having like 4,500 hit points. Mm-hmm. Like this. And these are like the, ca- the casual encounters, right? Yeah, these are the regular encounters. So, uh, so Sue isn't necessarily one-shotting them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no more Super Sue. Yeah, he's, he's and plus, uh, it goes from letting you briefly choose your party to once again forcing you into a, a party. Right. And right now, I've got Lauren, uh, yeah, Lauren and Alyssa, and I got a new character named Clark. Oh, okay. Hi, Clark. So Lark, Clark is a rogue robot agent. Uh, I want to say that he's basically Disco Stew, but in robot form. <laughs> Disco Stew doesn't advertise. Yes, exactly. Uh, he has this kind of disco music. Uh, the thing that's really interesting about him is that a lot of his mechanics are predicated on dying. Wow. So what will happen is you can buff up the party and do things. He, he can attack. He can buff mm-hmm. up the party and everything. Uh, but he has an, a, a move called Mortify, which will mm-hmm. boost everybody's attack, but only once he dies. Oh, I don't like that move. So once he, but that's fine because it's a pretty good boost and he's mostly just there to buff up the party. (laughs) He's there to die. And when he dies, the explosion will do a lot of damage to a random character. Like a random, uh, like one of your parties as well or just? No, no, a random enemy. Okay. So it's not friendly fire. Good. Yeah. No, no friendly fire. Thank God. But he, he'll do quite a bit of damage. So if you buff up that damage and then. Uh, you can attach equipment that will make it so that if you use an ability that will kill him, he won't necessarily, that he won't die. So you can so you can use that ability where he explodes and hits a random enemy for a lot of damage, but then he won't die and he'll be fine. Wow, I feel bad for this dude. But also you can use uh, an ability where he dies and he heals the party. Oh, wow. He, he's really handy in death. He's, he's a lot better than humans. Humans just die yes. and crap the bed. And I think it's Chan who has a the ability to revive characters once per battle. Yes. So you can pretty much set up a cycle. You can pretty much set up a cycle where he uses an ability that so that he won't die that would normally kill him to do a bunch of damage or to heal the party or something. And then you use it again and he dies and then you have Chan revive him, and then you have him do it again. This guy must have pissed off a deity in a past life, because <laughs> holy crap. He is a robot. I know, but still, I feel bad for robots. Robot disco stew. <laughs> Maybe, no wonder he's, he likes disco. He's like just so fatalist. He's like, hey, I may as well like all the weirdest stuff on Earth. If these trends continue, hey. <laughs> hey. Hey. Goldfish are dead. But uh, that's pretty much where I am right now. Uh, uh, as be, I, I'm I'm looking forward to the ability to get my party, pick my own party again, because it's doing a little bit of a Final Fantasy 13 thing where it's like, oh, now it's a new character and you have to use them. <laughs> I'm like, I do oh. kind of like I, I do kind of like that. Number one, how different the characters all mm. are, mm. Uh, and number two, okay, you get a good you get a good chance to use them and see if they're for you. But yes, it it can be jarring. Yes, and plus it keeps things uh, moving along because. Uh, I, I I know that I, even though I profess to like to mess around with parties, I'm one of those people who will absolutely, once I find the one true party, uh, <laughs> I tend to not move away from that. And I spe- suspect a lot of people are the same. Yeah. So, yeah. 
there's some characters I'm looking at this character list who look pretty interesting and I wouldn't mind adding. Uh, apparently, our alien bounder fr- hunter friend that I alluded to earlier, Zigzorf, <laughs> <laughs> uh, is apparently absurdly, insanely, crazily strong. So, yeah, he's nuts. Yeah. So, okay. So, Nadia, before we wrap up our latest Cosmic Star Heroine report, so uh, Robert's been listening. Robert Boyd, who helped work on this game, has been listening along. Hi. And he has some insights for us. Okay. Uh. Yes. So he says, so if you'll recall correctly, we were talking about that musical number uh, that introduced Lauren, which was pretty cool. And he says that that scene was inspired by the boat song cutscene in Lunar Silver Star Story. Oh, okay. That does make a little more sense than a TurboGrafx-16 game, because it does kind of have a little more animation and theatrics to it that the PC Engine wasn't uh, capable of. Yeah, I added it to the show notes. Uh, It's animated rather than the more, I don't know, uh, PC Engine kind of look that's going on in Cosmic Star Yeah, Yeah, Lunar is actually like an animated anime sequence, but... Yeah, it blew all our minds back then. Yeah, no, exactly. Back when this kind of stuff was like, oh my god, this is in a video game. It's a cartoon. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But he says, obviously, we ended up with a very different tone, but we wanted the same kind of big character showcase. We wanted to avoid the usual cutesy J-pop that Western developers usually do if they include a Japanese song. So for inspiration for the song itself, we went with, (laughs) okay, you ready? Mm. Evanescence. Ah, nice. uh, Puffy's Destruction Pancake, Spirit in the Sky, and Others. I think it turned out really well. That's Lauren Shigihara that did both the vocals and the lyrics, best known for Plants vs. Zombies and Rakuen. Oh, Plants vs. Zombie actually has a really understated soundtrack. I love that soundtrack, just to listen to it when I'm working. Mm. So yeah, that's a really good choice. Uh, can I just say Spirit and Sky, just a, a little aside here. When I learned how to download stuff on Napster, and I'm like, oh my god, I can have any free <laughs> any free song I want. I'm like, mom, mom, look at this, look at this, you can get any free song you want. She's like, oh my god, the first song she downloaded was Spirit in the Sky, which is a song about Jesus. <laughs> and it's just like, you stole a song about Jesus. Good job. You are my mother. Pirate, pirates still say pirates. <laughs> I'm just in a Simpsons kind of mood right now. Uh, Me too. Robert also mentions that, yes, that is a reference to a boy named Sue. Ah, beautiful. The Johnny Cash song. Okay, and okay. Apparently, Zigzorv was heavily inspired by Zerum from, from the Iria vs. Zerum movies and anime. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. My guess was Alpha 5 from Power Rangers, as I said earlier. <laughs> Alpha 5 is a robot. I know, but he kind of has that weird eye thing going on. I, I, yes. I, oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, Power Rangers. Okay. Uh, all right. So, so next week, we'll continue on with our adventures through Cosmic Star Heroine. Moving right along, I think you know, this game can't be that long. I, I feel like I must be at least halfway through because things yeah. move at just a ridiculous clip in this game, but it doesn't yeah, waste any time, does it? No, it really doesn't waste any time. I'm pretty okay with that. Like, if you want if you want a game that meanders and just kind of takes its time, there are plenty out there. But it's nice to just play a JRPG that mm. really just kind of goes from point to point to point. I don't feel, I don't get drowsy while I'm playing, I put it that way. It's funny because, I mean, we were talking about Panzer Dragoon Saga in the previous segment, and it it was somewhat of a similar thing where we were like, well, Panzer Dragoon Saga doesn't waste its time. It's only like a 20-hour RPG. It doesn't, like, overload you with fetch quests and that kind of thing or Mm -hmm. lots of setup. It just 
starts going and it goes and yeah. cos- cosmic star heroine every time you think oh, i'm gonna have a oh no here come nope. the guys to destroy the the rebel base and we're off again oh, we're hijacking the enemy ship and etc 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 yeah I, I really like that but i'm like i want a chance to sit down and play air hockey in the rec room though but i got at least two more planets to visit uh that mm-hmm. have quests on them so now i'm on the bioware kind of thing where it's uh, choose your planet <laughs> <laughs> desert planet or water planet or jungle planet yeah pretty much uh, let me go to one of two different planets but all right so let's move on to the listener comments All right, Nadia, as usual, we're going to do the listener comments. Muchan says, tons of big news coming out while you guys were reserved on the Secret of Modern Remake. It's good, nice to know that you both seem to be getting a bit more into it and always good to hear more about Monster Hunter. As for Bioware, I just hope EA is at least letting them relax a bit at times. They seem to be under so much pressure from both EA and its fans, and I wonder how much they are feeling at this moment. I mean, I'm more scared of Bioware becoming more EA-ified and like with other companies EA bought that just makes the game worse. And in the end, EA will not care and just get rid of it. And I really don't want that to happen with Bioware. The thing that's the thing that's sad about Bioware is that its founders left a long time ago, and yeah. in that respect, the direction just necessarily changed. To be fair, the director, the founders, the doctors, uh, Greg Zishik and such, um, started started Bioware down the path that it is on now. Like Star Wars: The Old Republic was, mm-hmm. uh, if I recall correctly, their idea. Opening Bioware Austin was their idea, but yeah. Uh, when the original founders leave, you just necessarily, the culture is just going to necessarily change. So It just happens, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, believe it or not, and I'm going to say that that's something nice about EA, uh, I don't think it's the same company that it was back in the 90s where it would absorb companies like Origin and just destroy them. I think they really go out of their way to let companies like Maxis and the plants versus zombies guys and bioware kind of do their own thing it's mm-hmm. just that either the creators leave uh, mm-hmm. or the founders leave as in the case of maxis because will Wright left <laughs> yeah you know, forgive me i don't know if he founded maxis but i know that he was a key part of it he left after spore and spore was his baby like that was his thing right yeah um and the the bioware founders left and ultimately went off to do their own thing uh, because they were like, well, we're good. We cash out. Bye. <laughs> Cashing our chips. We're taking off. Pretty much. I mean, certainly Bioware EA is putting a lot of pressure on them to have online components and mm-hmm, all that kind exactly. of stuff. Exactly. That's kind of the thing. I feel like EA lets the developers do their thing and then they come in at like the third hour and mm. try to, to shove all that, that microtransaction uh, stuff in there and, and whatnot and the stuff that everyone hates, basically. But it's not necessarily a case of, say, when they bought Westwood and then gutted them, right? No, no, so, they don't do that anymore by the looks of it. No, so, but it's not a great situation in any case. No. Um, Nobody wins. Uh, Ryder Kicker says, uh, Bob has basically sold me on Monster Hunter, and all I have to do is make some time and money for it. I played the beta, and it was very exciting. If it's everything he says it is, looks like it'll be a 100-plus RPG of 2018 for me. However, I have spent 40 hours in Yakuza 0 already. Even though I finished the game, there's still the matter of getting Nugget and finish both protagonists. Real estate domination. Speaking of which, uh, as of this podcast, they just announced that Yakuza 6 was delayed. Yeah, for a month. Yeah, that's really, that's a super drag because, 
I think that if it had come out in March, we would have had a much easier time focusing on it. Yeah, and as it will. Mm-hmm. Now it's in the path of uh, God of War. Just I was like going to say. As it is, coming. we're still going to focus on it for sure. But it's just so it's going to necessarily be drowned out by God of War. Yeah, I don't know what happened. I don't think anyone has a good answer to what happened at this, t- at this time. The thing that's really crazy is that it's pretty much done. It is done. Like the It's ready. It's ready. Like, the embargoes are the same as I understand it. Yeah, I I don't understand. But, yeah, so it's not coming out until April 17th. And that strikes me as a bad decision. But I don't know what's happening inside of I'm not Sega. A person. Yes. Uh, Great Lord Absu says, Billy Lee Black from Xenogears was awesome. All his nuts case, gung fu in his gusto. Yeah. Bang, 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 bang. Filling enemies with holy lead. That was the name. <laughs> Billy Lee Black. That was the Billy character that I liked. Nutcase Kung Fu. So <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, as always, to listening to the show. Axe the Blood Gods, US Gamer Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Thank you to the people who have been leaving nice reviews to, uh, to us lately. We really appreciate it. Um, if you want to leave a review, please do so honestly. Uh, please don't one star us just to make some uh, point. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, if you don't like us, I mean, we always welcome constructive feedback um, and uh, yeah, and that kind of thing. But yeah. Anyway, moving on. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at the underscore catbot, Nadia at Nadia Oxford. And, and of course, check out one more time Ben Lindbergh. He's on Twitter, I believe, at Ben Lindbergh. Uh, he's the ringer. He's part of the ringer, which normally they don't do hardcore rpgs but they did it this time so make sure to support that kind of writing we always love to see it even when it's not on us gamer mm-hmm. uh and of course subscribe to our other podcasts the us gamer podcast and we stream every tuesday and thursday uh this past week we streamed monster hunter on both tuesday and thursday didn't we nadia we did we had fun uh, i wasn't there for the first <laughs> session but like i said i played with mike uh, on the second one and we had a good time maybe we'll play some more next week it'd be fun yeah, that sounds good, but I won't be here. Ah. Yeah, you're going to Japan. I'm so jealous. Uh, I've never been to Japan. This is a this is a very exciting opportunity for me. Well, since you uh, since you like meat, you should definitely go and get curry. Yes. Well, I've already like every time I go to New York, I just make a beeline for a go go curry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Parish got me addicted to that. Yes, exactly. And you definitely want to get go go curry, the real thing, while you're over in Japan. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm hungry now thinking about it. And if you can, you should try to get out to Occupy or something like that. Yeah, make, if I have time. Make the they, pilgrimage they got... over to Super Potato. <laughs> I, I, I love that, that name, Super Potato. All right. So we you won't be here next week because... Oh. Yeah, you won't be here next week because you will be in Japan. So we will have a guest host... Uh, so we're going to have to put the Cosmic Star Heroine uh, report on ice for a week. But after that, we'll be back. But okay. Sure. Until then, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening. We'll be back next time. Until then, happy adventuring. <laughs>